Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jess, and fuck me, but the news is bleak, isn't it? All right, I'm about to get political, so if that bothers you, probably just skip this one, okay? Next episode is quite a bit lighter, though it's not all that hard to get lighter than spending an hour talking about Nazis. Today is the Ides of March, and as of the 3rd, at least 385 anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced across the country, attacking everything from gender-affirming care and drag performances to education and the ability of adults to check out library books. Library books! Meanwhile, in the UK, the government is pushing a bill to reject asylum seekers, which has been deemed racist, illegal, and unworkable. The UN's Refugee Agency has pointed out that it's in clear breach of the Refugee Convention, and Theresa May has slammed it as shutting the door to victims of modern slavery. The bill has received a lot of criticism, making headlines this week when football commentator Gary Lineker was suspended from BBC's Match of the Day for pointing out that the language used around the bill is uncomfortably similar to that used in Nazi Germany. You know, punishing people for disagreeing with the government is probably not the best way to prove you're different. I'm just saying. But lately, it feels like it's more offensive to talk about fascism or make Nazi comparisons than it is to pass legislation not a million miles off of what they actually did. You talk about the Nazis, and within seconds, someone will materialize to say, well, you're wrong, actually. Never mind that there are people literally marching through the streets wearing swastikas, shouting in German at drag queens, and speakers at CPAC are calling for the, quote, eradication of transgenderism. But, you know, it's probably fine. It's probably fine. In fact, you're the asshole for even bringing it up. Well, friends, today I am that asshole, and we're going to talk about Nazis. Look, as a straight white woman perilously close to 40, I fall into that demographic that feels like it should be safe, right? God knows lots of other ladies of my age and situation are kind of quiet about the whole thing. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't know how to help. Or maybe they're just sitting this one out because they don't think it affects them. But guys, it does. This shit affects everybody. These discriminatory bills are part of a larger strategy to roll back rights for everyone. And even if you don't have a single drop of empathy in your body, well, they will eventually affect you too. Look at what's happened over the last couple years. First, they targeted migrants, then voting rights, then birth control and abortion. They're attacking trans kids and adults, drag queens, gay people, the disabled, marriage equality, teachers. We are all in this together. And the best way for us to survive this increasingly dark chapter of history is to stick together and to fight for each other. And if you, like me, are in a position to talk back, do it. Get loud. Now, I know that women are socialized to be nice and avoid confrontation, but now is not the time. Now's the time to make your voice heard. Contact your local representatives. Turn up to town halls and school board meetings. Vote. Correct your peers when they parrot lies they've heard about marginalized groups and make it clear that Fox News does not speak for you. And for those of you who are directly affected by these bills, attacked for existing, I'm so sorry. The world is a better place because you are in it. We love you and we are standing with you. Today's episode is a particularly illuminating talk with Dr. Jake Newsom, author of Pink Triangle Legacies, Coming Out in the Shadow of the Holocaust. Obviously, talking about the Holocaust is never fun, exactly, but it's important. 
We are talking about anti-gay legislation in Germany from the late 19th century until the 1970s, the experience of LGBTQ people before, during, and after the Holocaust, and how the pink triangle transformed from a Nazi symbol to one of gay pride worn all over the world. We also talk a little bit about Nazis' war on birth control and how gay rights and women's rights are connected. Hint, it has to do with fascism's obsession with controlling reproduction. Gross. This is obviously a heavy topic, but it's hopeful too. If you take anything from today's episode, I hope it's that despite the enormity of the oppression, despite all the tricks that people pull and all the abuse they hurl your way, standing up to it is worth the fight. Love is worth the fight, and so are you. I love you guys. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jake Newsom. All right, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Jake Newsom, author of the brand new book, The Pink Triangle Legacies, coming out in the shadow of the Holocaust. Welcome. Hey, Jess. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. We are so glad to have you. This book is mind-blowing. Oh, my God. So I have so many questions, and I know I always say this, but honestly, <laughs> this list is its a bit nuts. So we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to hope we get to the end. All right. <laughs> okay. So I think for a lot of people, the pink triangle now is an instantly recognizable symbol. But for those who might not be familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit about it and where it came from? Yeah. So, you know, I... Uh personally was first encountered uh, the pink triangle um, as I, well, in, in two instances, as I was in the process of, um, you know, becoming a history graduate student, but also at the same time coming out and trying to figure out what does it mean to be, you know, gay in, in the world? How do you find your, your place in the world? How do you connect with, with LGBT history? Um, and so I was studying the Holocaust um, which is where one of the ways that I uh, encountered the, the pink triangle for the first time um, and its historical origins is that it was the uh, badge that the Nazis used to identify uh, queer concentration camp survivors. So every, every prisoner in the Nazi concentration camps was marked with a color-coded triangle um, that designated their so-called crime or, or reason that they were being imprisoned. And so and there were red triangles for political prisoners, uh, brown for the Roma and Sinti people. Um, there were purple for Jehovah's Witnesses. So this whole range of colors and the pink triangle was used to identify uh, predominantly queer men uh, and transgender women. So at the same time that I am learning this, you know, incredibly uh, dark and violent history that happened you know, in Germany in the 1930s, uh, I was in Buffalo, New York which is where I was for grad school. And I saw a pink triangle as decoration at a, at a gay bar there. And so it struck me as how did we go from this concentration camp badge, you know, in Germany, a, a mark of, you know, dehumanization to now being used as uh essentially something festive and, and a bar decoration in America, in Buffalo, New York, you know, decades later. Uh, and so this really sparked the whole idea that ultimately became this book, Pink Triangle Legacies, was trying to trace the transformation of this particular symbol, but then also capture the whole 
you know, chorus of voices and stories behind that transformation. It's it's so interesting how the meaning of it changed. And we're going to have to talk about that as well. But I suppose we should probably start at the beginning. Yeah. Now, for not everybody, you know, of course, is, is that familiar with German history. So how did Germany view homosexuality um, in the imperial and Weimar periods? And did that change under the Nazis? Up until World War One, Germany was um, was an empire. Uh, it was ruled by um, an emperor or as they called it, a Kaiser. Um, and even in the late 1800s, Germany, but especially Berlin, the capital city, is developing a an approach to trying to understand human sexuality and human gender that really isn't present anywhere else in the world. Um, there, it's it's primarily led by a man named Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who was um, talk about intersecting identities. He was socialist, he was Jewish, but and he was also gay. Um, he was a physician and he made it his life work to try to study human sexuality. And he was one of the, the first to argue that human sexuality uh, existed on what he called a, a series of intermediaries, what we today might call a spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he argued that since that was natural, it was unethical then for society to uh, persecute the LGBTQ community based on something that they could not control. Uh, he also was um, a pioneer in trying to understand and advocate for the transgender community, um, which they, you know, I did the, the term that they coined and used uh, to identify themselves at the time was were transvestites, uh, which today has a kind of a, a more specific meaning. Uh, but back then was more general and, and, and applied to kind of um, anyone who today might be considered uh, trans or transgender. Mm -hmm. So this was really, as I said, a, a unique moment um, in Germany. And that, that continued and, and in fact accelerated after the end of World War I. Uh, Germany was defeated. The emperor was forced to abdicate the throne and a democracy was established in Germany for the very first time, and it was uh, known as the Weimar Republic. Germans understood that part of being a democratic society is that people should have, you know, their own individual liberties, as long as, as, long as that didn't infringe on the rights of others. And so what we see in Germany, again, especially in the big cities like Berlin, is the LGBTQ community carving out a rather public space for themselves and a level of tolerance and acceptance that just did not exist anywhere else in the world. And in fact, Berlin became a kind of unofficial queer capital of the world. Um, so folks came from London and New York and Paris, um, from Asian countries to you know, revel in, to experience this level of community um, that, that you know, didn't exist elsewhere. And so all of this is happening um, in Germany, which is kind of, you know, a lot of us, at least I will say myself, think that, you know, as history progresses, as time goes forward, things just like automatically get better. Mm -hmm. um, and so for us to hear about, you know, this level of acceptance uh, in Germany, only to know that the Holocaust comes right on the heels of that, at least makes me re- rethink and reprocess how we understand kind of progress and its relationship to time because clearly just because you know we're moving forward 
doesn't mean that things automatically progress and get better. And I am so fascinated with Weimar Berlin. Um, I, I have all these books on it. I think it's incredible. So do you think that some of the, the homophobia coming out of the kind of Nazi period, do you think any of that was kind of a reaction to what was happening in Weimar Berlin or, or was this something else? You know, I, I think you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head that, um, of course, anytime that there is especially a sudden kind of progress in terms of social, social movement, social communities, I think it always creates um, a backlash or at least the potential for a backlash. And so, um, and I know we'll get into the, the details in just a moment, but the, when the Nazis came to power, they were really able to dismantle and destroy this vibrant LGBTQ community and drive it back underground, in some cases, within a matter of weeks. Um, and so this, right, this was something that had been building for decades and then was, so, was able to be so quickly dismantled, I think speaks to the level to which homophobia persisted in German society. That even though there might've been some progress you know, in the capital city, Beyond that, maybe there were some tensions simmering about um, the need to combat this. And a lot of Germans said, you know, reassert good German values. Um, and so the, the Nazis really relied on that rhetoric in their campaigning is that we, you know, we are going to fight against um, this, this new lifestyle and this, these, uh, the degradation of German morals and reassert, um, you know, essentially good traditional German values as, as the norm. That's so sad. And as you said, they took it apart so quickly. How did they do it? One of the very first things that the Nazis did uh, when coming to power is try to control access to information. So uh, the LGBTQ community in Germany had established a vast network of uh, publications. So whether it was daily or we weekly newspapers um, to full books that were being published, um, a lot of them by Magnus Hirschfeld in this, uh, the Institute for Sexual Science there in Berlin, the the Nazis, you know, understood that access to information could change people's views uh, mm -hmm. and influence their behaviors, and so they immediately banned all LGBTQ publications, um, not just queer publications. I mean, this was part of a broader banning of or purging of so-called un-German uh, books and and articles uh, that included, you know, Jewish authors, um, communist authors but very specifically also queer authors. The Nazis officially came to power in January of 1933. Uh, in May of 1933, in those infamous book burnings that took place in Berlin, um, the Institute for Sexual Science was, was one of those targets. Um, and so even in, in the course of one night, 20,000 books and articles and artifacts were, were burned uh, in those bonfires in that evening. The Nazis didn't believe that people were born gay or were born LGBTQ. They, they believed that essentially everyone was born straight, but some people um, were tempted into what they called the homosexual lifestyle. Um, and they actually believed that, that democracy created more gay people um, because they believed this idea that in a democracy, everyone was so focused on their own personal civil liberties, their own personal rights, that it made them just more um, selfish and, and weak. Uh, and this was essentially setting them up to be more easily tempted into the homosexual lifestyle. 
Um, and so one of the reasons that they banned all of these publications and began shutting down all of the LGBTQ bars and meeting places and organizations was they said, okay, we're going to take this temptation out of the public eye so that people won't be tempted to, to you know, join this community. Yeah. God, I hate how familiar this sounds. Yeah. Rings really eerily similar to a lot of the arguments today about, you know, why we need to control access to information in the classrooms today. This idea that, you know, talking about gender affirming care will somehow create more trans people. Uh, this is not a new argument. This is something that uh, comes straight from uh, Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. Straight from the playbook. So how did the legal approach to homosexuality change in the 1930s? Can you tell us about paragraph 175? Yeah, so when the Nazis uh, came to power, again, they were elected to power. I just want to point that out. They inherited a set of laws in the German criminal code um, that criminalized so-called crimes against morality. So there were a whole slew of laws against abortion, for example, or, or sexual assault. Um, and there was, as you mentioned, one called Paragraph 175 that explicitly criminalized um, essentially same-sex behavior between men. Uh, and this specifically referred uh, only to men. The Germans, even before the Nazi period, believed that any same-sex desire between women was not legitimate. Um, that essentially, as soon as a good German man came calling, a woman would you know, just correct her ways and, and go running back into his arms. Oh, and sure. So they, yeah, you know, and this, again, that's not unique to the Nazis either. That's That was pretty widespread, the, this idea that a woman's desire was inherently tied to a man. Um, so they would have thought, like, they thought that, well, okay, even if two women, like, kind of fool around with each other, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't pose a real danger to society because, hey, they'll, they'll get married and, and, and that problem will be solved. So for them, queerness or queer actions between men was viewed as most dangerous because who has access to positions of authority? It was men, right? So um, paragraph 175 already was on the books when the Nazis came to power. They, they kept it for a couple of years, but believed that the way it was worded was too constricting on their ability to really go after uh, queer men in the way that they wanted. So in 1935, on which during it was during the same months that they were crafting the famous Nuremberg race laws, um, which those laws predicated German citizenship based on race. Um, so they they defined Jewish people, even if they were German, as not being uh, of the, the Germanic race, and therefore it stripped them of their citizenship. So the same time that they're trying to legislate citizenship through racism they are trying to legislate sexuality based on homophobia um, so they amend paragraph 175 and the new wording of the law says that what's criminalized is indecency between men which is very purposefully left vague right so that judges prosecutors could interpret that however they wanted to which means that they could arrest or convict as many men as possible um, and the number of convictions under the law after that amendment skyrockets. And in fact, it increases by an astounding 740% after that law. And in total, the Nazis end up arresting about 100,000 queer men uh, under paragraph 175. 
God, it's astonishing. Anti-gay propaganda drove a lot of the homophobia at this time. How did that influence the public perception of LGBTQ people uh, during and, and even after the war? One of the things that struck me doing this research uh, and reading the, the research of other scholars, you know, who have dedicated their, their work to this topic is just how wildly popular the Nazis' homophobic and transphobic policies were mm -hmm. among the general public. I mean, it is clear that the that average Germans tried to activate the power and the violence of the Nazi government against their, you know, queer neighbors, queer family members, even in staggering numbers. Uh, this is, of course, you know, the case for a lot of um, the queer men who are arrested under 175. They've been turned in by landlords, neighbors, and in fact, we know that out of all of the cases under paragraph 175 that ended in conviction. A third of those stemmed from civilian denunciations. Germans clearly understood what would happen if they even accused someone of being a, a so-called 175er. Um, they knew that the, the Nazis would launch an investigation. And after that 1935 conviction, all you had to prove was indecency. That's not a high standard of, of evidence. Mm -hmm. um, so it was likely that then that, that would grant a, a conviction. You know, one of the things that I also want to point out is that you know, this law, paragraph 175, pertained to men. Uh, it also swept up a lot of transgender women because the Nazis clearly did not view transgender identities as legitimate. So they would have seen a transgender woman simply as a cross-dressing man. And so, you know, it's hard for us kind of to, to look at those statistics of arrest records under 175 and be able to tell exactly, you know, how many of those were kind of cis queer men or how many were, were transgender women. And at the same time, queer women like lesbians were um, also targeted under a wide range of laws. Uh, and in fact, um, the Gestapo, the, the Nazi secret police didn't even need a, the pretense of a, of a broken law to apprehend someone like a lesbian and put them in a concentration camp right now. We don't currently have comprehensive statistics of the number of, for example, transgender people or queer women um, who were arrested in comparison to those number of queer men, because, as I said, they were you know, arrested or apprehended under a number of different policies and laws. Um, but scholars um, currently are working on that. So hopefully we will have some of those numbers uh, pretty, pretty soon in the future. Yeah, of course, they'd be um, classified differently. Now, sure. one thing that stood out to me, um, because for, for my history focus, you know, I'm all about kind of contraception and, and kind of the history of abortion. So at the center of all of this, you have the Reich Central Office for Combating Homosexuality and Abortion, both of them there right in the title. Now, it seems like these should be two separate things, but they weren't. How were they connected? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, because that's one of these stories that really drives home the connection between you know, queer rights, queer issues, and reproductive issues, mm -hmm. the Nazis viewed the primary danger of homosexuality, of queer people, as a reproductive issue, right? They, they thought that queer people essentially rob the German master race of future children. And so that is why you can see that folks like Heinrich Himmler, who was probably the second most powerful man in, in the Nazi government, is establishing this, this central office in Berlin 
to combat what he saw as threats to the German birth rate, mm-hmm. right? So he's going after gay people and he's going after, you know, folks who, you know, might be using contraceptives or, or even, even though abortions were illegal, but right, that still doesn't mean that um, people aren't having them. Mm-hmm. And so he had this whole office dedicated to trying to, to stamp out uh, abortions and, and queer life, queer people. Right. And um, I'm glad you mentioned contraception. So in 1941, Nazis outlawed the sale of all contraceptives as well. How were women treated under the Nazis? You know, women had this weird, this weird role in Nazi Germany, which is kind of the kind of similar in a lot of, you know, patriarchal systems, where on the one hand, they're viewed as definitely subservient to men, right? They were taken out of all, um, public roles, uh, public uh, professions, uh, because it was seen that, you know, their role was to be good mothers and wives, right? To take care of the men, to take care of the home, to not only uh, bear and deliver good Aryan, you know, German Nazi children, but to raise them with good Nazi ideals as, as well. So on the one hand, they were definitely kind of on the second rung, but they also were viewed with kind of this reverence, um, at least the rhetoric of reverence uh, in society that, you know what, they are literally the portals to creating this so-called master race. And so we all have to, you know, respect and, and, and adore German women. But again, it was a lot of rhetoric used to kind of justify why women were kept isolated in the private sphere. And honestly, that idea also um, is is integrated with or is connected to why the Nazis chose not to criminalize same-sex behavior between women whenever they revamped paragraph 175, because at the end of the day, the ultimate goal of Nazi Germany was right selective breeding and the idea of trying to produce this racially pure society. So they believed that, you know, even if a a uh, woman was a lesbian, she could still bear German children by, by force if necessary. Um, mm-hmm. So there was, you know, they just didn't see it as a need to try to, what they essentially said, clog up the judicial system by trying to process lesbians when, and in fact, we can just get them pregnant with children anyway. Yeah. So horrifying. Oh my God. And of course, you know, we're, we're seeing some kind of worrying parallels now. So there's all this kind of anti-gay legislation, anti-trans bills, you know, being presented at the moment. And also, you know, in the last couple of years, they've been trying to crack down on abortion and, and even contraception in places. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, why are fascists so obsessed with controlling reproduction? You know, this is what, I think I think fascists, especially today, would never use this term for themselves, but they are clearly employing an intersectional approach to their activism, to their policy making, and to their attempts to recast society in their image. Because you're right, it's not just homophobia over here and some uh, you know fight against reproductive rights over here and and you know racism over here. It is all interconnected. It is this idea that politics and and society should reflect essentially the physical body of the nuclear family and and the individual, right? Mm-hmm. That you know, 
a a household should be run as a you know one man one woman you know man and wife they should they should be having children right um and there's this especially in a, in a lot of right wing kind of neo fascist groups still the idea that right races shouldn't be mixing together right that that the, uh, there's this whole worry of, of interracial marriage too and so therefore it's not surprising to see that written out on a larger kind of national scale through their politics they're all fronts of a of a war that the neo-fascists are trying to wage to regain or recreate an image of a society that they feel that they've lost mm -hmm. and yeah. i feel like you know that's also very similar to nazi rhetoric in the late 1920s early 1930s as they're campaigning is that germany has lost something that especially under this new democracy germany's not what it used to be it's not what it should be but don't worry here's this kind of small right-wing party that claims to have the answers and that they will re-fashion germany into the way that it was and should be again yeah, it's all kind of based on this like toxic nostalgia. Oh, toxic nostalgia. That's a really good way to put it. Absolutely. All right. So the Nazis were, were very open about the fact that they were scapegoating already marginalized groups to build a consensus among the majority. So how much popular support for the persecution of LGBTQ people was there? I know you talked about this a little bit, but how did they build the support? And how did this change over the 12 or so years that their so-called thousand-year Reich actually lasted? Yeah. You know, I think that the Nazis were politically savvy uh, some of the some of the leaders like Hitler himself honestly did not personally care about LGBT issues or what we would today call LGBT issues right he uh, Hitler just wasn't personally invested in it interested in it but they knew that there were so many factions of the right wing um, in in Weimar Germany at any given time there were like 40 different political parties right so this which is just astonishing to me. So the Nazis knew that they were going to have to build coalitions if they wanted to essentially be able to govern and, and, and get a majority in the parliament. So out of, you know, all of these right-wing parties, the Nazis understood that, you know, they would not be able to win based on a, a platform that was just about, for example, anti-Semitism or anti-capitalism or, or anti-anything, really. Um, but they knew that one issue that could probably unite most of the right in a way that other issues couldn't was homophobia, was blaming problems on, uh, as you said, already marginalized communities. They, they tried it with the Jews. Right? Anti-Semitism was kind of a unifying factor. But for those who you know, otherwise didn't find anything accessible in the Nazi party, that homophobia drew in more voters and, and tried to build coalitions, which I think is also right the same is the same tactic being used today. So as I said, it was surprising to me that the Nazis didn't have to work that hard actually to fan the flames of homophobia and transphobia. They had found a very receptive audience in ordinary Germans. Um, there is an example in Hamburg where the number of civilians turning in queer people to the to the Nazis became 
apparently so high that it was overwhelming to to the regime and they actually run a front page ad in the local newspaper saying you know you're all great you know nazis you're you're we know that you're supporting the cause but you're overwhelming the the police force right now by turning in so many you know queer queer people um and so we need you just to kind of take a break and let our police you know let our good german cops uh, get caught up and then you know we'll be able to really handle this this problem that to me is mind-blowing uh, i guess it really shouldn't be but this idea that ordinary people are taking it upon themselves to say you know what we're not going to wait on nazis to go after queer people we're going to do it ourselves uh, so much so that that they overrun overrun the system and we also know uh, from the archives that even that even though Germans understood that paragraph 175 only applied to men, that didn't stop them from turning in lesbians and other queer women and, and, and trans folks as well. Um, you know, sometimes they would, they would, in these records, they would admit that, hey, we know you probably can't use paragraph 175 against this woman, but you definitely need to check her out. Or, um, you know, just kind of expecting that the Nazis to overlook the law altogether and still take in a person because they were, or apprehend a person, I should say, because they were they were queer. Um, so again, this also helps us understand how fascism works, that it's not just a top-down form of government, but that it creates a an environment that unlocks deep or not so deep-seated uh, prejudices and allows space for ordinary people to contribute and take part in the persecution of marginalized communities. Kind of uh, enables and empowers people's kind of worst impulse. It, absolutely. It's, just, it's horrible what people can do to each other. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. So what were Himmler's concerns about homosexuality and how did they determine the Gestapo's treatment of gay people? How dependent was this approach on the erosion of the rule of law? You know, Himmler, so he was in charge of essentially the Gestapo, um, which you can think of that as a police force that didn't answer to the normal kind of rule of law. It answered just to the Nazi party, um, which in a lot of ways it meant it answered just to Himmler himself. Uh, he was also in charge of the SS, which was this uh, elite um, elite organization that started out as a kind of a personal bodyguard contingent for Hitler and and top Nazis, but grew to um, be this really large organization that was responsible for running the concentration camps and and killing centers. So at the top of this was Heinrich Himmler. And looking through the writings of top Nazis, it becomes clear that Himmler is kind of the Nazi who's the most obsessed with the question of homosexuality. Um, he takes it upon himself to um, issue decrees that anyone, any man in the Gestapo or the SS who is caught with another man essentially would be, as he says, would be put on trial, found guilty, thrown into a concentration camp, and then be shot while trying to escape. Right? So this was essentially a death sentence um, for, for those in the SS and Gestapo. But it also goes to show that while the Nazis were kind of keen on at least the facade of legality, right? Of right, they could have just arrested as many men as they wanted to, but they took the time to try to amend paragraph 175. They wanted it to, to look like it was on the books. 
Himmler decides that even with that new amendment, um, the, the court system and the law enforcement system just isn't taking this threat seriously enough. And so that's, that's when he creates this um, Reich Central Office for Combating Homosexuality and Abortion, which exists completely outside the legal system and again, answers only to him. So he creates this network, these tools of persecution that he says, essentially he feels, he justifies it by stating that in any case where the German legal system is at odds with Nazi ideals, Nazi ideals win. Um, and therefore that was justified in kind of sidestepping the, the legal system. Because um, it's important to point out the concentration camp system existed beyond uh, the legal system. So, you know, it wasn't written, for example, in paragraph 175, that if you're convicted, you're sent to a concentration camp. That was, you know, for normal kind of jail or prison time. But Himmler decided, you know, who was going to be picked up after serving their prison sentence and be sent to a concentration camp, essentially for extra, extra punishment. Right. And what happened to them when they were there? As you might imagine, uh, homophobia didn't stop at the camp gates. So we, we know from survivor testimony, uh, so from gay survivors, but also from you know, straight survivors and other victim groups, perpetrator survivors as well, that the men with the pink triangle, right, queer prisoners, often had to face homophobia, not just from the guards, but from their, their fellow prisoners as well. So they were um, subjected to hard um, manual labor details because the Nazis believed that hard work was a man's job and that somehow, you know, being forced into this hard manual labor would turn queer men straight again, mm -hmm. <laughs> somehow, right? Um, so this idea that they, you're put into a concentration camp as essentially behavioral conversion therapy to try to make you give up that lifestyle, you know, be normal and straight again so that you could be released and sent, uh, you know, back into German society. Right. Goodness. So what happened to them after the concentration camps were liberated? Did anything change for them after the war? Despite this policy of uh, re-educating men and, and then releasing them, what we find is that in reality, that wasn't usually the case. Um, out of all of the, the, the concentration camp prisoners who were imprisoned for being queer, about two thirds of them were killed in the concentration camps, right? So this shows a clear discrepancy between this policy that, no, we're just putting you here to, to cure you, um, and then you can be released back to your family, when in reality, the majority of men were, were murdered in the camps. Mm -hmm. Now, when the Allies defeated Germany uh, in May of 1945, they found themselves suddenly uh, needing to care for hundreds of thousands of concentration camp prisoners. Um, and led by the Americans, the Allies quickly implemented a policy in which they would release all of the survivors who had been imprisoned based on their race religion, or political affiliation. But they said that it was too dangerous to release these so-called common criminals back into the general public. So the because the men with the pink triangle had broken a national law, the allies considered them to be a common criminal. 
So uh, at this moment of liberation, if there were any pink triangle survivors who still had any um, time left on their prison sentence, they were taken from this liberated concentration camp to a nearby prison where they were then forced to serve out the rest of their time. So in some cases that might be two or three weeks. In other cases, it was two to three years. God, that's just terrible. So how did the attitude to homosexuality change after the war? And how was it shaped by the way the war was remembered? So essentially it didn't change. It didn't change much uh, at, at least. And in fact, you know, I, it's not, it shouldn't be super surprising that um, the allies, you know, re-imprisoned a lot of the queer survivors because a lot, well, all of the allied countries had anti-gay laws on the books back in their own, you know, back in the home countries. Um, and so the homophobia, transphobia persisted in people's mindset and society, but also in the reflection of laws and policies. So for example, um, the allies in the immediate aftermath of the war decide to purge all uh, Nazi laws from the German criminal code, from the German constitution, but perhaps not surprisingly, they leave paragraph 175. They say, we're gonna leave it up to the Germans to decide what to do with that law. Uh, so 1949 comes around, East and West Germany are created. Right? East Germany is the communist country. They, within a matter of months, get rid of the Nazi version of the law uh, and go back to the 1871 original version, which was a little, a little more lenient, right? Um, and essentially, they say, you know, as a communist country, it's it's a contradiction to our identity to have any fascist law um, in in our criminal code. Now, West Germany. Right. The democratic ally of the, you know, the United States, the UK, France, um, decides to keep explicitly the Nazi version of paragraph 175. Uh, and they claim that in order to establish Germany as a functioning, healthy democracy, they need it to be founded on traditional German Christian ideals. So they kind of rewrite the history and say that homosexuality ran rampant in Nazi Germany and that it was going to be up to West Germany um, to, to essentially fight it and bring it under control so that they could uh, create a stable democracy. So West Germany not only keeps paragraph 175, they, they use it. Um, they arrest 100,000 queer men uh, in the first two decades alone using the Nazi version of the law. Oh, that's so terrible. And of course, surveillance continued as well. Uh, now, tell us about the the pink lists. So they, they actually started back in Imperial Germany, and they lasted through the Nazis and into the 60s. What was their purpose? And why did they last as long as they did? Yeah, you're right. So there were these things called pink lists. And these were lists of names, addresses, professions of men who were, well, I would say primarily men who were known to be or even suspected of being queer um and you're right that they 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 started during the imperial period they existed through weimar right through the democratic period um when the nazis come to power and himmler creates this central office they essentially go around to different law enforcement agencies across the country and consolidate these lists almost into a national database there in berlin this is an incredibly dangerous, powerful tool that the Nazis had that allowed them to identify, um, you know, 
not just in Berlin, but all across the country uh, where, where queer people were. Like a lot of things, there's continuity with that policy past May of 1945. So West Germany continues to um, use those pink lists. Of course, there aren't um, any more concentration camps. So it's not like it's just like Nazi Germany, but certainly if your name ends up on one of these pink lists, you can have your driver's license or state ID taken away. You can be definitely fired from your job or evicted from your um, apartment. They could take your college degrees away, uh, your any type of, um, uh, you know, if you belong to a political party or any type of local civic organization, they could kick you out of that um, and essentially be, be blacklisted. So clearly this is a level of horrifying, uh, to say the least, continuity of not just mindset, but also policies from you know, from the Nazi period to the, the West German period. Wow. So how did gay activism develop through the 70s and the 80s? And how did they uh, get their message across? Finally, in 1969, the, the West German parliament amends paragraph 175. They don't get rid of it, but they at least changed. They're not using the Nazi version anymore. Um, and this kind of makes enough space for a, a politically oriented gay rights movement to emerge. So, you know, in America, it's kind of picking up steam in the late 60s. In Germany, it's a few years behind in the early 1970s. And during this period, um, the act of coming out and publicly claiming an LGBTQ identity was seen as not just a personal decision, but was a political tactic as well, right? This idea that in a democratic society, people should not have to live or keep their sexuality in the closet just to be treated, you know, with dignity or or not face violence. So they are arguing that actually we have a right to be publicly out. And what's really cool is from my research that I found is in, in Berlin, especially, there's this group of queer activists called the Tunten, which translates kind of as as the the fairies. And so they are, maybe as the name suggests, uh, really gender non-conforming. I would say probably probably cis, but at least in the way they perform their identities, you know, they might wear high heels and jeans with some makeup on or something like they were very intentionally provocative um, with their, their gender performance as a way to visibly showcase their queerness. So they're having these uh, really internal impassioned debates about, hey, look, we step out the door and we are very openly queer. We don't even have the, the option to hide or kind of pass, but we want to make sure that all of you straight passing gays also find a way to be outed um, so that you can, number one, see what it's like to live openly as a queer person, but also we need to show the rest of society just how many of us there are. So the debate then becomes, well, how do we publicly out ourselves? And they say, well, you should wear a gay symbol. You know, just wear something on you that says I'm gay to the rest of the world. And this, as you can imagine, sparks a lot of debate about what is a gay symbol? You know, what does, how do you market yourself as gay? Um, and at the same time, this is in, in early 1972, a book comes out that the English translation of the title is called The Men with the Pink Triangle. And it's the very first published 
book by a gay concentration camp survivor to tell their story. And so suddenly this group is like, that's it. Like we, this is, it's the pink triangle. That's going to be our gay symbol because they knew that their fellow West Germans would instantly recognize it as a concentration camp badge, right? Mm -hmm. It was not just any symbol. It was a symbol from their nation's darkest chapter of history. And therefore it would be a, you know, potent, powerful warning of what happens when homophobia goes unchecked. They adopt the pink triangle, they reclaim it, and it really becomes wide, widespread after that. That's fantastic. So what does it mean to people today? You know, this is, it, it, this journey starts in, in the early 1970s where these activists in West Germany, and really a shout out to um, a group in Frankfurt that was a kind of small but leftist, Marxist, queer, radical group called Rochwul. They were the very first, um, at least documented group uh, in the world to use the pink triangle as, as a symbol of gay liberation for the very first time. Uh, and these activists there in Frankfurt, but also in West Berlin, explicitly discuss and articulate that they are taking this symbol that originated as a negative mark of dehumanization and turning that meaning on its head, right? Reclaiming it and trying to give the symbol new meaning and new power by saying that, you know what, when this symbol was created, it marked us as something shameful, something that needed to be locked away. But we believe that being queer is in no way shameful. So we are going to now wear this badge as a mark of pride. And so this message resonated not just with West Germans. It turns out that it resonated with, with queer activists in New York City, in Miami, all across the U.S., North America, and then throughout Europe. And one of the things that I have found so enlightening and inspiring in researching this book is just how then different communities embraced the pink triangle and kind of made it their own. Right. So for some people, it remained a radical marker of political activism, that it was always explicitly political and it was meant to be con confrontational. Mm -hmm. For some people, it just became a way of almost like a lighthouse of, you know, they could wear it on their backpack or on a T-shirt as a way to, to signal to other queer people that, hey, I'm here. I'm one of you. Like, you know, I'm I'm fam. Right? Because especially in those early years, even though it became widely known in the queer community, the history behind it wasn't so well known in straight society. So there was a way kind of for people to, to wear it on a shirt. And, you know, most of society would be like, what is that? You know, they, they would miss the meaning of it. But it, again, it remained that very clear message for other, other queer people who, who knew it. Clearly by 2010, you know, in the present, um, the pink triangle had lost a lot of its um, political meaning and, and power. And it became, you know, decoration in, in a gay bar that I stumbled across in, in Buffalo, New York. And so it's kind of had this long journey through time and across oceans um, and has meant different things to, to different, different groups of people. And that's wonderful. It's so inspiring. 
So just to bring this back to the present, I read just yesterday that more than 300 anti-LGBTQ bills have been filed this year already, and we're recording this in February. So why is this happening now, and what can we learn from the history? What can history tell us about how to fight it? You know, it's really remarkable. Uh, in 2021, the Human Rights Campaign announced that uh, that year had been the worst year on record for anti-LGBTQ legislation. That record was broken by 2022, and clearly we seem uh, on, on path to break that record very soon, even though, as you said, we are recording this only in the second month of, of the year. That should be a wake-up call to not just queer people, but to everyone that at least statistically, a small number of Republican politicians across the country at all levels of government are trying to, and in many cases, being successful in passing legislation that controls everyone's ability to identify themselves and to move freely in our society, to you know everything from decide uh, to decide our own health care, to decide uh, what sports we play, what bathroom we use, what books we can read, right? All of these things that seem mundane, there are attempts now to legislate that. To me, the history of the, of the pink triangle is a stark reminder that words are never just words. Right? Words are, are powerful. Uh, they can do, they can create communities, they can be generative, but they can also destroy. And so I think that on the one hand, the queer community up until the last few years, we have enjoyed more rights than we have in the past, right? You know, uh, especially with, with marriage equality. Um, I was able to legally get married and now like, you know, it, it's recognized all over the, all over the country. And I think we got a little bit complacent and we felt that, you know what, as time goes forward, it's going to keep getting better and better. And so when there was, you know, started these whispers from, from the right about needing to, as we talked about at the beginning, as we heard the whispers of a backlash, some of us dismissed those as just words, right? But as we're seeing now, those words are being spoken by people who have been elected to office and now have the, the authority to turn those words into action. And so just like we talked about um, the queer community during the Weimar period that had enjoyed and built a dynamic queer community that was unprecedented anywhere else in the world, they did not probably see or take seriously the homophobic, transphobic rhetoric that came and then was able to, you know, spark widespread discrimination amongst the, the ordinary people to demolish that community within a matter of weeks. To me, that is the Pink Triangle's powerful reminder that progress is always fragile and needs constant protection. Just because some rights are won doesn't mean that they can't be taken away. Um, and so, so to me, the pink triangle is just a reminder to that we have to remain vigilant because we've seen in the past 
what can happen if we're not. Absolutely. Where can we find more about you and your work? You can always find me online on my website at wjakenewsome.com. Um, there you can find information um, about where to purchase my book if you want. You can buy an autographed copy from me. Um, you can find information about my book tour. Hopefully I'll be coming to a community near you. Um, but then also I've uh, compiled and curated a number of resources, free digital resources on the topic, you know, whether you're a teacher, a community leader, or just an individual who wants to learn more about this topic, um, you can go to wjakenewsome.com resources and find everything from digital lectures to podcast episodes, um, survivor testimony, uh, and, and, and a whole lot more there for you. They're all available to you for free incredible we will definitely check it out well thank you again for coming to the show this has been so amazing absolutely i i enjoyed having that conversation with you thanks once again i'd like to thank dr jake newsom for stopping by the show his new book is pink triangle legacies coming out in the shadow of the holocaust and it's out now you can find more about the book and Jake's related projects at wjakenewsome.com or on Instagram at wjnewsome. As he mentioned, his website has a ton of great resources that you can access right now for free. So definitely check that out. In other news, this is our 50th episode. <laughs> Holy shit, you guys. I'd like to thank each and every one of you for sticking with us. I know we had to take a little time off last year when I got sick, and then we had to adapt the format a little bit to allow for that, but we're still going, and it's all thanks to you. Thank you for tuning in and sending me so many lovely messages over the last couple years. It's really meant so much to me. I cannot thank you enough. This next year is going to be the best one yet. And a huge thank you to our gorgeous, amazing patrons on Patreon who literally keep the lights on some months. I could not do this without you. Big hugs and so much gratitude to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you guys so much. If you would like to support the show, you're already doing it just by listening. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Patreon at Dirty Sexy History. We do fun bonuses over there, like extra mini-episodes and holiday cards, so check it out. You can also find us on Facebook, Mastodon, and Instagram, or at our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.